0: Well, we have been going through Psalm 23, in case you didn't know, but today we're going to do something just a little bit different. I thought, you know, we really got to believe the words that we put on the walls. And instead of Psalm 23 this morning, in light of, in light of it being Palm Sunday, I want to be radically different as we've been, uh, aside from every other Sunday this year, I want to be radically different this year and go all the way in our Bibles to Psalm 24. <laughs> And um, you'll understand why here in a minute, but Psalm 24 is an absolutely appropriate psalm for a day such as this. And uh, we're going to get there in just a second, but um, let me just uh, say again how good it is to see to see you and have you here this morning. It's great to have our, our friends and family who, of course, will have to listen later online because it's... Uh, Not working again this morning, but it is being recorded, so we will connect with them a little bit later. I had a couple people say, Hey, do you just like turn off the stream when you get up there and preach? Because we're watching out at camp because we got Starlink set up and we watch church online at camps when we're, you know, away on the weekend. And then they just kind of stopped when you got up to preach. I said, No, the internet just doesn't want to hear what I have to say. And, um, of course, that's not a conspiracy theory, by the way, that's just a joke. And, um, Anyways, so I said, no, no, it's just that the internet sometimes just decides not to work properly for some reason uh, every time we get up to preach. And uh, so anyways, uh, I said, I record it and post it online. You can listen to it later. And most people that I talk to that are regular attenders and joiners online, they will go back and listen later. So for you, that in person, you didn't need to do any of that, but now you know because I told you. But if you head over to Matthew chapter, I believe it's 21, you read the story and the encounter of Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. And when they first heard the noise of the crowd, the cheering and the shouting, as, as they drew closer and closer, they could hear what everybody was saying. The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. Now, I don't think they said it quite that boring. It was probably a little bit more dramatic, of course, that the king is coming. Now, if King Charles happened to drive down Highway 17, I, I don't know how many of us would yell, the king is coming, but I, I can imagine that there would be many of our people lined to the streets of Highway 17, or the shoulders, rather, of Highway 17, just to get a glimpse of the motorcade. Or maybe you'd be on the, the train, of course, going, we'd all be standing on the overpass watching the train go by, or maybe out the ski hill or something like that, but... Um, when the king came to town, that was usually a pretty big deal. And uh, we're going to dive into that just a little bit here this morning. But they would shout. Everyone would hear the crowd saying, the king is coming. And more curious than ever, they pressed forward to see what was happening. What is going on? Some people were were tearing off their coats and throwing them on the road, making way, making the path clear and clean and and renewed for the king to come. Others, of course, were, were scrambling up palm trees and taking palm branches off the trees and waving them and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you have been at a Palm Sunday at our church over the last uh, five years or so, uh, maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't noticed, I preach almost the same message every Palm Sunday. And if you've listened and paid attention, you would know that uh, those palm leaves are, are, are a symbol of a Jewish... Um, um, victory and nationalism. It's like waving your, it's like waving our Canadian flag on the battlefield, a sign of victory. And they would wave these palm branches, a sign of victory. The king has come. He's come to, to set us free. And they would wave these la- the, these palm leaves in celebration, yelling, "Hosanna in the highest." I always love the way it echoes the birth of Jesus. Of course, when the angels sing above uh, his birthplace and sing glory to God in the highest heaven, Hosanna in the highest. And they sing this, uh, this way, making the way of the, the Lord. And they saw the king himself, a man on a donkey. And of course, some of them were expecting a battle. Uh, army and a, and a battle horse but he comes on the royal authority uh, riding on a donkey uh, but also to pay attention to here is that the donkey here is actually a sign of peace that this this is not a king that's coming to war because the battle is going to happen in the grave but he is coming as a sign of peace and let me just pause there totally irrelevant not totally irrelevant but not in my notes today if you are in a season of your life where you're not experiencing very much peace Um, allow the Lord to come in, because he comes as a sign of peace. He's come to to bring you a sign and a symbol, and not just a sign or a symbol, but he's actually come to bring you peace itself. That's just sort of free this morning. If that's uh, for you, just receive it. If it's not for you, pray for the person that it is. So this is what happens on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus enters in, gentle, riding on a donkey, and something else happened that day as well. And this is where Psalm 24 comes into play. As uh, as he is riding into Jerusalem through the sheep gate, Pastor Katie just briefly mentioned um Uh, Palm Sunday and Jesus come riding in he came riding in on the sheep gate which is important because it is the gate where they would bring the sacrificial lambs into Jerusalem because it was close to the temple and they would bring it in for the priests and so Jesus symbolically enters as our sacrificial lamb through this gate riding on a donkey a sign of peace but as he is riding in on this day the first day of the week the Sunday the priests are in the temple reciting Psalm 22 And this is what Psalm 24 says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. I think we could spend 2024 next year on this psalm itself. I don't think we're going to do that, but we could. There's lots of good stuff in here. Verse 7, he heard us sing it this morning. Lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. in the temple a few steps away where Jesus is about to go flip a few tables, he, he, the priests are inside reciting this poem. Lift up the gates for the king of glory is here and the crowds are cheering, here comes the king, the crowds are cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. And the priests are saying, who is at the gate? And they're answering themselves as they read the psalm, the king of glory is at the gate. The moments that Jesus is walking in to Jerusalem. If you ever question God's timing on something, don't. Because his timing is absolutely perfect. This is not a coincidence by any means. And as as we talk about uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the timing of everything is no coincidence by any means. So the people on the streets and the priests in the temple are asking this question. Who is this king? The people said it was Jesus. The priest said it was the Lord Almighty, and the people said it was Jesus. And in a way that nobody could yet understand, they were both right, because Jesus is the Almighty Lord. He is the King of glory. Now, this is, a, this is of course, a psalm. It's a poem. It's got three parts. Some people say that it's three poems. It's in three poems in one. I think they're all connected. It depends on what scholar you want to talk to. But they all in agreement that this is a song about the king of glory. It's not certain when Psalm 24 was written, but we can, uh, through some educated guess, not mine, I'm not smart enough for this. This is just what I read about in my research. Uh, but the psalm is about God making a royal entrance into his holy city. So quick history lesson, God promised Abraham that he would be a father of many nations and many of his descendants would would be spread as far as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore kind of thing. And he says, I'm going to prepare a holy place for you in Jerusalem was the center of that place. And so Psalm 24 is a celebration of the God of Abraham, the God of the world coming into his holy city. And most scholars, therefore, think that it was written by David when he was trying to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And so the Israelites had followed King Saul. King Saul had lost a couple wars to the Philistines, and the Ark ended up in the hands of the Philistines. Now what's significant about the Ark of the Covenant, if you do not know, was that it was the representation, it was the place where the presence of God resided. And they would put this Ark in the temple, or before the temple was born, they would put it in the tabernacle, and it was in the most sacred holy place of that tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And it was where the presence of God resided. It was in this ark that was carried across the Jordan River before Joshua crossed it with the rest of the army. Every time the ark was present, the Israelites were victorious in battle. And they would celebrate their victory in battle because the presence of God was with them. And really, it was God that was winning the battle for them. And we sang another song this morning, Battle Belongs to God. And... Today, we believe that the presence of God and the power of God still fights our battles for us today. But what happens when the presence of God is removed? Well, we learn that when the presence of God is removed, in this case, when the ark is removed, and what really, what really loses the presence of God is when they actually turn their back on God. When the Israelites, and particularly in this case, King Saul starts ruling in his own power and stops leaning on the Lord, and David becomes anointed as the next king, not Saul's But David himself because Saul kind of goes off the deep end message for another day But the important thing here is that the presence of God what brought them victory in battle has now been lost And so this psalm 24 is predicted to be written the time when David is now king and he has become victorious in battle And he is one who walks close with the Lord and one that is obedient to God and it's this moment of celebration And this is what happens it had been fashioned in the day, of course, and the ark was fashioned in the day of, of Moses. But every time the ark of the covenant was present, people it brought God's people victory. So every time the people saw it, they expected victory. Uh, here's kind of what happens, though. When the Philistines who are not holy people, who are not God's people, they put the ark in their temple with their gods and their idols. And every day they would come back and the idols in their temple would be fallen over, almost in a, in a form of posture of worship to the temple or to the ark of the covenant. And then what happened is because of their unholiness, the presence of God that was so strong they could not, they could not live and function in the presence of God because they were not made Holy. And they started to die of diseases and get sick. And they said basically to David, we got to get rid of this thing. Take this thing back. We don't want it anymore. And so David himself decides to bring it to Jerusalem. But the problem was that the ark was as dangerous for the Israelites as it had been for the Philistines. And during this this journey, a man named Uzzah reached out to steady the ark because they had it on a cart. And it was falling off the cart. And he he reached out. He touched it. and He was struck down. And he died. I'm talking fast because it's, it's a minor detail of our message today but it's still important to understand. So he reached out, and he was killed instantly. You find that in 2 Samuel 6, 6, and 7. At that point, it seems safer for them to leave well enough alone, and so they put the ark in the home of a man named Obed-Edom. Now, what an amazing experience that Obed-Edom has, and David pays attention to the experiences Of Obed-Edom. The presence of God is literally in his house. It has now become the place, the holding point for the Ark of the Covenant. And when David saw that God was blessing Obed-Edom, he again decided it was time to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And he decided we're not going to do it in our way. We're going to go back to scripture, we're going to go back to the law, and we're going to learn how do we handle the ark, how do we handle the presence of God, what is the proper way, and so they reinstate their practices. They reinstate things that get their hearts and their minds and their bodies in the physical way that would welcome the ark of the covenant back, and so instead of putting it on a cart, they had the four priests carry it the way that it was designed to be carried, And so it was likely this occasion as David dances into Jerusalem in his underwear, nonetheless. You can read that story another time. Because he's just so excited and he's just dancing before the Lord. It's this occasion that we think Psalm 24 is written. The king of all. Here's here's kind of a few few things about the king. So who is this king of glory in Psalm 24? He's the king of... Of all people. We start at the beginning of the psalm. He begins by praising God as the master of the universe. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and those who live in it, for He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The verses here assert God's absolute ownership over everything there is. The whole world belongs to God. It not only includes the world itself, but everything in it. Could you imagine that uh, maybe the person that, uh, you have someone come over to your home, and you say, yeah, this is my house, I own it. I paid for it, cash, it's absolutely mine. It's not even the banks, I don't even have a mortgage. But nothing inside the house is mine. Could you imagine how weird that would be? No, the world, the universe is God's, along with everything in it. Now, I don't know, has anyone here ever been to space before? And everyone been out to space before? No. Um, everyone ever been out to space? I don't think so. But you've probably seen pictures from space of our earth, right? And just imagine for a minute that if the world belongs to God and everything in it belongs to him, then who do we actually belong to? Not that he owns us, but who do we belong to? We belong to God. Whether we choose him or not, we belong to God. Uh, In other words, God is like a giant toddler that says, "That's mine." I remember my uh, Bible college uh, president speaking in chapel once about his grandkids, who was you know two or three at the time, about a toddler. And uh, here's the thing about toddlers: you've probably, if you've ever been around kids long enough, you know when uh, when they have something in their hand, that's mine. When they uh, are walking and they might have something in their hand and they see something, they go, that's mine. If they have it and it's theirs and they put it down somewhere else and then they go off to do something over here, like they get uh, maybe this one and they come here and they go, this is mine. But that's also still mine as well. You can't have that, that's mine right and then they lay down on this nice little couch and they're having their nap time and they're thinking that's mine that's still mine over there this is how toddlers this is how toddlers think right but this is also what god thinks of you he looks at everything in creation he looks at bill and he goes that's mine i made that that's mine looks over at greg and greg and frank Not the Three Stooges. They're mine. Looks at everything in the world, the beautiful trees, the beautiful lakes out here, the fish inside the lakes, the beautiful trees. He goes, that's mine. I created it. It's mine. Frank catches a fish, and he thinks he caught the best one in the world, and God goes, no, no, that's mine. (laughs) Rachel catches the fish. She can have it, but... He looks at it and he says, it's mine. Everything in it is the Lord's. So what basis does God claim such absolute authority? Of course, on the basis of creation. The earth belongs to the Lord because the Lord made it. Now, I don't know where you stand on the creation evolution debate. Whether, whether you believe, um, or however you believe, we're going to get to that in maybe another day. No, no plans in the calendar yet. However you believe it, it doesn't matter. The Lord created it one way or the other. I believe and you were I believe when it comes to humans that you were created with purpose, you were created with intentionality. And if you don't believe me, go to another psalm, one of my favorite ones, and it says that he formed you in your mother's womb. Perfectly. If you don't believe me, go back and read the Psalms and you'll find out. So what authority does he claim? Everything he is the creator of it, it's his. The earth belongs to the Lord because he made it, he founded it, he established it. God is the creator, and because he is the creator, he is also the king. God's power in creation gives him the right to rule over everything that he has made. Why is this debate so important? Well, when people disagree about the origin of species at the beginning of the world, they're not arguing about how the universe was made, but rather, who's in charge of it. It's not so much about the how, but more importantly, the who. Right, when we come up with ideas that this is just something out of nothing for no reason at all, by pure happenstance, when there's no purpose or intelligent design behind it, it's all about control over ourselves. Well, if, if this is all by happenstance, I could do whatever I want to make myself feel good, to do whatever makes me happy. But if I have to answer to somebody else who has now established my creation and this creation, all of a sudden I do have to answer to the higher power ahead of me and above me that maybe there is more of a purpose this isn't just by accident or happenstance that there's actually reason to it psalm 24 answers our question by saying god is ruling the universe even at this very moment it's there there is the belief that god created everything and then left the world to work on its own say guys like there you go see you later it's all up to you. Now you guys know how much we like Disney and Disney World and stuff. And, and so Walt Disney World has their own kind of engineering creativity department. They call the people that work there Imagineers. And they're people that can imagine and they're also engineers. They're basically just creative engineers. And uh, what was fascinating to me is they're the ones that come up with all the cool ride designs for their theme parks. So they're the ones that dream up all the, the mechanics of everything and the, the theming and the decor, everything, every little detail. And, and one of the things that Disney does well is, is pay attention to detail. And, and so they do all of these things. And I, we had this opportunity, I took my father-in-law uh, one time when we were down in Florida to have lunch with an Imagineer. Now let me just tell you, the lunch itself was kind of boring, the Imagineer we had. It wasn't very inspiring, which was a bit of a disappointment. But what was fascinating to me is she revealed to us some of their creative process. And I thought it very fascinating to me is that they, as an Imagineering body, they come up with a ride, they, they theme it, and then they build it, and once it's built, They basically hand the keys over to the parks department and never touch it again. They say, okay, here's how you maintain it. Here's what you're supposed to do. And they never touch it again unless they're going to refurbish it and make it into something else. And that totally fascinated me because when I build something, I want to be able to use it again. I want to be able to to experience it and sit on the deck that I built and go, hey, remember when we built this deck? Remember when I kind of cut on my finger on that piece of wood? If you flip that board over, you can find my blood there. work on a little project. So remember when we put that bathroom sink in there and that project? Remember we had to sand all the walls because of the pine on there? It was a ridiculous project. Yeah, I love to just experience the things that I've created or rebuilt. And and uh, standing in this room, I watched, uh, the memory came up on Facebook of us laying the floor here with Greg and with Frank and a little bit of Chad. And and uh, it had a, I watched the time lapse of us doing that project again. And it was uh, just a really good moment to go, hey, remember when we, did that when we get to experience it continually. I just find that incredible that they would just hand the keys over. Not that they wouldn't go personally and experience the attraction. But they just hand the keys over and then they're off to something else. And there's people who believe that about creation. They may believe, yeah, God created this and then he just left it on its own and left the people up to their own decisions to do whatever they want, however they wanted, with no consequence whatsoever. And well, that's not exactly true, but I believe that God is still ruling the universe this very moment. He is still the king of heaven and earth. He still sits on the throne, and he's still very much involved in the lives of his creation and in the birth and life of his creation. If you don't believe me, read more of the Bible. We can talk about it together later. Now, as we finish this thought that God is king overall, the fact is that God is the ruler of the essential and is of all that is essential to the meaning of this entire psalm. The end of the psalm ends with God's entrance into Jerusalem. However, the God of Israel is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole earth. So the psalm was, and this is what I love, when the Roman soldiers put up this sign, we'll talk about maybe Good Friday, they put up the sign, Jesus, king of the Jews. What What a poor misconception that they had. It was easy for them to put Jesus in a box and say, you're just the king of the Jews and look how much power we have over you. I've come to tell you that Jesus isn't king of the Jews, he's, he's king over all of the earth. And you may have thought you won in this moment, Mr. Roman soldier, Mr. Caesar, yourself. But uh, let me tell you, the battle is just beginning. The king of God and the king of Israel is not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the whole earth. So when the psalmist begins with his cosmic kingship, say that one ten times fast, cosmic kingship. The entrance of this glorious king is an event of universal significance because the whole wide world is his dominion. Now I love that if you walk into the peace tower in Ottawa whenever they finish refurbishing that building in the next 20 years or something like that, you can walk into the peace tower and there's the the line from the Psalms that he shall have dominion from sea to sea. Well, let me tell you that God has dominion more than just Canada. He has dominion over the entire world. In fact, when our missions team goes to Mwanza, Tanzania uh, in November, Lord willing, uh, we're not going to go and bring God there. He's already there because he has dominion over it. Um, you can find him in all of creation, just um, FYI. Uh, the next thing that we look at, not only is he the king of all, but uh, let's look at the king's audience from Psalm 24. Psalm uh, if God is the king of creation, obviously, what does that mean for us? Well, obviously, someone has to swear allegiance, or everyone owes him allegiance. But David answers and raises this important question in his psalm. Well, if the Lord is Lord of all creation, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the Lord's holy place? If God is king, who has the authority or the ability to stand in his presence. Like, I don't think any one of us could walk into Buckingham Palace without invitation anyway and stand before King Charles III. If you want to try to do that, I'm with you. Let's see what happens. Let's do it. Let's find out. But David asked this question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? Psalm 24, 3, meaning God's holy temple. To put it another way, who has permission to enter the royal court and have audience with the king. Psalm 24, verse 4 to 6 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God. Remember that word vindication. It's important. We'll come back to it in a minute. He will receive vindication from the Lord God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, O God. Of Jacob. To come into the presence of the king, one must have both outward obedience, in other words, you gotta look the part, but you also have to have inward integrity. It means that you have to play the part and be the part. In fact, I believe that your outward obedience is actually a reflection of your inward integrity. My wife will tell you about the book she read years ago in Bible college uh, Who You Are When No One Is Looking. That's integrity. It's uh, what is meant by having clean hands in a pure heart. I'm not telling you to sanitize your hands at the door when you walk into church. Maybe you need to, but you, that's not going to allow you entry into church. It's not about the personal hygiene. A pure heart obviously refers to the life and of our soul, so God requires inward integrity as well as outward obedience. Second half of verse 4 forbids adultery, requires the telling of truth, Idolatry has to do with worshiping God and truth telling concerns human relationships. So this verse is about loving God and loving one's neighbor. Shocker. Who would have thought that it all comes down to loving God and loving your neighbor? What an what an amazing idea. It's like we've never talked about that before as a church. Who would have thought entering the kingdom of God and the presence of God would come down to showing your love and allegiance to him and loving your neighbor as yourself? I mean, you'd think Jesus preached that the whole time he was on earth or something like that. You'd think he showed us how to do that when he walked on earth or something like that. This is sarcasm if you didn't notice. I think we could, we could come as maybe not an exhaustive list, but we can come to about four requirements for meeting, meeting the king. And... Really, only the person who has both outward obedience and inward integrity, who loves God and his neighbor, will receive the blessings of the Lord. So who can possibly meet this royal standard and get an audience before the king? Uh, The clue in verse 5 is, he will receive vindication from God his Savior. To vindicate is to justify, so this verse is now about justification and about being declared righteous in God's sight. So the question becomes, what basis can anyone be justified by God? Well, What makes me holy enough to be in the presence of God? Well, let me just skip ahead to my notes here, and it says sinners can only be justified by a God who saves. This is all about what we're going to talk about this week and next week. It's all we're going to talk about when we talk about the hope of the church and the hope of Jesus is that what we learn is that there is nothing that you and I can do on our own that will ever make up for the sin that separates us in God. Unless God intervenes and saves us Himself. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. Psalm 24 teaches us, you might think, that we're justified by our works. The person God vindicates is someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, how do I wash my hands? Someone who doesn't lift up their soul to an idol or swear by what is false. It sounds as if God vindicates a person for doing what is right, but of course, no one can meet that standard perfectly. I mean, we may not have a statue in our house that we worship, but I bet if we looked hard enough, at least throughout the history of our lives, there are probably things that we worship or give more attention to in our lives than we do to God Himself. They become idols to us. And in case you think you might be perfect, you're not. And then you might say, well, Gary, how do you know? Who are you to tell me that I'm not? Well, I don't know, but I just know what the word says. And the word says that there is no righteous, no, not one. So that's why I can tell you that today. Not because I'm the pastor, but because the word says so itself. So where does justification come? It comes from God himself. The person who may ascend God's God's holy hill still needs a savior from sin. Not justified by good deeds, by by doing good works, um, but by God's salvation. It's important to remember that nowhere in Psalm 24 is this mentioned, but it's essential to understanding it. Namely, when the Israelites went up to the temple in Jerusalem, they always took a sacrifice with them. God's law demanded the removal of guilt through the offering of a perfect animal, a substitute for sin. They said, if there's something that was guilty that was done, there needs to be a substitute. Otherwise, you are the one that needs to get put to death. And so if you don't want to get put to death because of your sin, you're going to need a substitute. And so they would substitute every day, the priests. They would offer two perfect lambs, one in the morning and one in the evening, and they would come out of the fields of Bethlehem where they would be raised up, where they'd be birthed and born, and they would take the perfect, most perfect lambs they could find. They would bring them into Jerusalem. They would bring them in through the sheep gate, which was the closest gate to the temple mount, and the priests, every morning and every evening would sacrifice a lamb as an atonement, as a, as a substitute for the sins of the people. That way, anybody who walked into the temple, anybody who walked or approached the throne room of God, their sins would be covered by this substitute now i don't know uh, if you're thinking this question but what remains true for us today in our christian worship is the requirement for entering god's royal presence has not changed well you said gary did you sacrifice a lamb for us this morning no i didn't and i'll tell you why next sunday the only people who are permitted to approach His throne are those who have been outward obedient inward in- who have inward integrity who love god and love others The only way to meet those requirements is to be justified by faith. Believing in the God who saves, trusting in Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. Now, does that mean our worship is exclusive? No, it's not, because the church is inclusive. The church is the invitation. We are the invitation for us to invite others into repentance so that they too can be justified. How do you know you need to substitute if you never admit that you're guilty in the first place? How do you know you need a substitute if you never admit that you're guilty in the first place? Third part here today is the king at the gates. The psalm's climax comes in this final stanza. David has asserted God's rule over creation. He's explained those who have the right to enter his royal presence. Now the king comes into his glory. Throw open the gates, open wide the everlasting portals, enter the king of glory. The last stanza of Psalm 24 is the form of dialogue. Um, If you were to kind of go back to the days when the king of England literally would ride up to the city wall, this helps paint a better picture of what's taking place here for us. Uh, It's an old English tradition, according to ancient custom, the king of England, England entered the city of London through the Temple Bar. A servant would herald his approach. By the way, if we ever get a Bible college intern, they're going to herald my approach on Sunday mornings. Here comes Pastor Gary. Anyways, it's going to happen. You think I'm nuts. I would totally do it, though. But the herald would stand outside the city wall and demand entrance in the king's name, crying, Open the gate! Then the royal party would hear the response from within. When someone knocks at your door, what do you say? "Who is it? Who's there?" I don't think we do that in, in Terrace Bay. We just open the door. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Jehovah Witnesses standing there anyways, "Daddy, there's two people dressed in suits that want to talk to you. "No, I'm not available. Sorry. <laughs> "Who is there?" And the herald would answer, "The King of England." And the gates would swing open, and the king would enter the city and receive a royal welcome from his loyal subjects. Well, see, the scene in Psalm 24 is something similar. The psalm is a song, and it calls for a response. In David's day, it would have been sung by the choirs of Levites and perhaps by some of the soloists. Um, Of course, David is very musical, and so, no doubt, everything is musical. It would have gone something like this. The the first choir would sing outside the city gates, calling on behalf of the triumphant king, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up. You ancient doors, the king of glory may come in. And then the people would respond, but the gates could be, before the gates could be opened, the gatekeeper had to be certain of the king's royal identity. Hence the demand, who is the king of glory? And the heralds would reply, the king of glory is the Lord strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. Now I thought we could divide the room today and this half could be the heralds and this half could be the responses. Anyone want to do that today? No, no one's giving me eye contact. Okay, but you get the idea. Now this time the royal choir would start to get impatient, so they would repeat the summons again. Lift up your heads, all you gates, lift them up. The ancient doors, the king of glory may come in. And as the gates would slowly be swung open, the gatekeeper repeated his question, not because he was hard of hearing, in order to be difficult, that's something that I would do. What did you say? Sorry, I didn't catch that. No, he would repeat it intentionally, ask them to repeat it. Because he wanted to hear the happy, joyful news again that the king of glory has arrived. The king of glory is here. The king of glory, the Lord Almighty, is here. And together they would sing, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. The end of Psalm 24 becomes this great celebration. Who is the king of glory? We know the king of glory, strong and mighty. Now, you can continue to read about the king at the gates and the king of the, the song of the king, king over all the earth. And as we close today, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, but we also recognize that as Jesus ascends into heaven, he's also made the king of heaven. We we'll read this in Philippians 2.9, that God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place, gave him the name above every other name. The name the Father gave the Son was the very name mentioned in Psalm 24, the Lord, which signifies that Jesus Christ is the supreme God and ruler of all. According to Hebrews, when Jesus returned to heaven, he took a seat on the majestic throne. After he had provided purifications for sin, he, the Son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Ephesians summarizes by saying that God raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him at the right hand in heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given. Our conclusion this morning is is really this. Classic pastor conclusion message, King of Glory. We talked about the Song of the King, King of creation, king at the gate, king of heaven. Here's the cheesy pastor line for you this morning. Are you ready for it? There's one final place for Jesus to make his royal entrance. And you are the gatekeeper of your own heart. You get to decide. I said, Jesus may be in control of the whole earth, and he may look at you and say, you're mine. But you have to respond and go, I'm his. And even though he's, we hear as Jesus stands at the door of the church in the book of Revelations, he says, he stands at the door and knocks. Anyone hears my voice, behold, they'll let him in. Even though that's the context, literally, could you imagine us having church and we leave Jesus out of it? What's the point? And that's what, happened, that's what happens to this church. Jesus is literally knocking on the door of the church, and he says, let me in, this is my church. He's waiting for someone to open the door, and pastors use this all the time, right? Well, he's knocking on the door of your heart. Well, maybe he actually is. The final place for Jesus to be king, even though he has dominion over everything, he's given you the ability to choose. God, I want you in my heart or not. I want you in my life or I don't. God, I want to choose to love you or I don't. God, I want to choose to love my neighbor or I don't. But if you want to ascend to the holy places and if you want to ascend to the hill of the Lord, then you really do have to open up your heart and let the king of glory in. And when someone asks you, who is this King of Glory? And you're going to say with full confidence, the Lord Almighty in battle. And you're going to know that because he has conquered every fear in your life. He's conquered every, every sin in your life. He has overcome and he has given you the power to overcome every guilt, every moment of shame that you've ever felt when the King of Glory comes in. You know, we use this, maybe you've used this or heard this line as a kid. What would, you know, you're telling your kids to clean the room or clean the house or something like that. And what would you do if the king or the queen showed up to your house? What do you think they would think? Right? They want to make it all pretty and nice for the king to come in and everything's got to be just right. The thing about Jesus is he's not waiting for you to make everything just right. He's not waiting for you to just get things in order before you invite him in. He says, no, I'm ready for you. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm here with my mop and my vacuum. It's like, it's, like, it's like cleaning your house before the cleaner comes. Like you hire someone to clean your house, but you don't want them to see how bad it is, and so you clean it first. It's, just, it's the same thing when it comes to Jesus. He's not waiting for you to clean the house first. He says, look, I got the mop bucket. I've got it covered, literally covered. I've covered everything by the blood of the Lamb. What's interesting is we have one more royal entrance to make. It's our very own heart. It's important everyone understand that not everyone who sings the praises of God receives him as king. Palm Sunday is, of course, the perfect example of this. The first day of the week, while the priests were singing Psalm 24, the whole city is welcoming Jesus coming as king. By the end of the week, those same people are calling for his crucifixion. They said, Open up the gates. He is the king of glory, the Lord Almighty. Let him in. The next week, they're out there pointing the other finger. Crucify him. It's all about what's, what's on the inside. It's not simply enough to say that Jesus is the king of glory. You must actually let him take place, the throne of your heart. Let me pray for you this morning. Our Father, our King, our God. Jesus, the King of glory, Lord, as you stand here today in our presence and as we sit and stand in your presence, Lord, we know that you are inviting us to be a part of your family and many of us, oh God, have served you probably our entire lives or most of our lives. Lord, some of us have served you and walked away, and Lord, you still invited us back. You gave us another chance, oh God, because Lord, you declare that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so, Lord, as we come with humility, Lord, as we come with repentance today. But my prayer for everyone here and everyone that will listen later, oh God, is that we would be willingly, openly ready to invite you to be the Lord of our lives. The king of our hearts. Lord, even as we sang that song this morning. Lord, I pray that as you enter into our, our lives and as we invite you, Lord, to be king over our thoughts, over our words, over our actions. or that you would be glorified and that you would be lifted up through all that we would say and all that we would do. God, I pray that we would continually in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us that have made the same commitment, Lord, that we continually see the change and transformation that takes place when we make you king of our lives. God, I pray against anything that would distract us or hold us back. Lord, the little voice of the enemy whispering to us, telling us lies that we don't need to do that. That we're just fine. God, we're not fine without you. Lord, we need you. Just as David prayed, oh God, after he had his moment of rebellion and sin, Lord, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. God, may those words echo in our minds today, they echo in our minds this week. So, Lord, when we come together next Sunday, Lord, we can truly celebrate and sing about the King of glory, not just as an outward expression of our feelings, but, Lord, as an outward expression of our inward transformation. God, I pray a blessing over each one here now. In your name we pray. Amen.